0: increasing traffic volumes and deeper complexity. These are just some of the common challenges organizations face as their applications grow. In order to manage the growth of applications, they have to be designed to deal with traffic spikes and minimize downtime. Architects need to consider availability and managing risk as part of the application design. Joining us today for a round of cocktails is an experienced expert on doing just that. Listen to his sound advice on how organizations can design their applications to scale by improving availability, designing for failure, and managing risk.
1: Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation, Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat. Join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown.
0: Alright, joining us today for a round of cocktails, of course, is Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. G'day, Kevin. And our guest for today is an experienced and recognized industry thought leader in cloud computing and architecting applications for scalability. He helps companies modernize their applications via focusing on scaling and availability, facilitating cloud migration, DevOps transformations, and risk-based problem analysis. He's the author of the book, Architecting for Scale, published by O'Reilly Media. He's also a renowned speaker and industry expert, widely quoted in several publications, and has been a featured speaker at events across the globe. Today, he joins us for a round of cocktails. Lee Atchison, we're glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, I even brought my
2: cocktail with me. So I'm nice. ready to go. <laughs> it looks like a martini with an olive, is it? That's exactly what it is, yes. (laughs) Very very appropriate. Yeah,
0: that's perfect. So, while we were reading your bio, uh, we noticed that it mentions that during your seven years as a senior manager at Amazon, you led the creation of the company's first software download store. You also created AWS Elastic Beanstalk and managed the migration of Amazon's retail platform to a new service based architecture. So can you tell us more about your experience of migrating Amazon to this service-based architecture?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. So when I started at Amazon, it was in 2005. And they were, uh, you know, by all um, modern definitions, a small company. You know, there were still hundreds and hundreds of thousands of probably overall employees. But uh, it was about 100 engineers in general who were working on the retail side of the company. Um, of the company, which is a lot smaller, of course, than it was today. But even at that level, they were running into problems. Uh, um, The biggest problem they were running into is that uh, they had designed the system so that every transaction that went through the website had to go through this one application called Obidos. And the word Obidos comes from It's a spot, um, and I've I've never actually verified this, but the, the story that was told is, it's a spot on the Amazon River where all the tributaries come and it forms a funnel for the main part of the river. And at the time they built it, they thought, hey, everything, this is great. We'll funnel everything into one location and that'll make it easier to build this eventually and all that great stuff. Well, of course, we all know now that that's the exact opposite of the right way to build an application. And they ran into that problem. And, and by the time I came along with about a hundred engineers working on essentially some way, shape or form uh, this one piece of code, there, there were other services but this one piece of code was touched a lot by everybody. They tried deploying it twice a week but there was always something, some team that didn't run a test suite or some team that made a change that broke something. And and so it rarely actually got deployed. It was a major problem with, uh, with um, um, the application and, and it made making changes the application very slow. So what they did was they built a, a new system called Grupa, which again, I didn't check this, but the way I understand it is Group is the part of the river after the narrowing where it widens back out again. So uh, the whole idea was uh, let's build this uh, this application. So instead of having one funnel point, we instead have an infrastructure where we can plug in all these modules that are all independently developed, independently deployed, independently tested and, uh, and you know, services essentially and front end services as well as back end services. And we'll, we'll change the entire website over to this new model and throw away the old model. So over the course of about, I think overall it was probably about a two year project. They moved the entire Amazon website from Obidos to Grupa and, uh, I came on board working for the uh, at the time the 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 person who started that whole project. but by the time it was over, I was running the the team that was doing the coordination to get all of that activity done and 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 moving over to the new architecture. and And at the end, we had something like a hundred, some engineers working over the course of months and months, um, just getting to the point where this one day, and we did some migrations, little by little, but we mostly did most of the changes in one 24 hour period of time where we had this war room, we got together and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, we had, you know, metrics on the wall and phones back to other teams. And yes, we had real phones and we called back to real people on other teams. And, and we were all in this room together and doing this migration, uh, you know, uh, country by country over the course of 24 hours all over one night, one, one whole one whole day. And it was great. I mean, uh, the, uh, the CEO stopped in and, uh, and then thanked us and said hi and all that sort of stuff. I got to shake his hand. And that was the first time I ever met, uh, met him. But, uh, but it, was, it was a great time to, to make all that happen. And at one point, we estimated that 0.1% of all internet traffic changed that day because of this one project. And uh, um, we, we had this term that we used uh, that we called the New York Times event. And the whole idea is New York Times events were bad things. Um, that that's when there was an article posted in the New York Times that said Amazon screwed up again, and we tried to avoid those. And uh, our whole goal was to try and make it through the entire day without generating a New York Times event. And uh, and we did. You know, nobody noticed it. That was perfect from our standpoint. It was very smooth, and and it just happened. And. That was a, that was a great project. First, that was my first project at Amazon. That was a great project to be to be running. Actually, by the end, I was running that, and uh, and it was um it was a you know, just a fantastic experience. And 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 it's it also it it shows that uh, you know some of the things we were learning about the internet back then. Because what after it was done, over the course of about a month or so, traffic started trailing off. And we started having problems with, you know, we got less search results is what was happening. And this was getting towards November now with uh, Black Friday and, you know, big time for shopping. And our search traffic was dropping off and started to drop off rather dramatically. Well, that's when we learned what search engine optimization was all about. And, and literally this was, you know, this, we had a team that did this, but we really didn't understand it. It, it was a time when we were, people were trying to figure out what Google was doing with search results or what really drove search results and what didn't. And the thing that we didn't know at that time, obviously everybody knows this now, but at the time we didn't know is that the URL was an important part of search results. And we had failed to do the redirections correctly in a way that made Google happy. And so Google stopped saying, well, they're not around anymore, so we're not going to send traffic to Amazon anymore. So it, it ended up being a, a a minor, well, not so minor, but a a, a a major emergency with a minor fix that we we put in the night before Thanksgiving just to try to get the traffic to come back up again. And uh, and it worked and everything was fine, but uh, there were some very stressful moments right before Thanksgiving with all of that happening. And it's amazing some of the things you learn that we take for granted now, but back then were, were new things that people were learning about how thing, how the internet
2: worked. You're learning by cutting your teeth. Is this where, yeah. is this where your uh, passion for service oriented architectures came from? Yes. Yeah, okay. uh, very definitely. Yeah. Um,
1: I, I learned a lot. I mean, the, the, you, you hear all sorts of good things and bad things about Amazon. And, yes, it's a pressure cooker environment. And, yes, it's hard to work for. It's the best job I ever had that I will never do again. Mm. Uh, but uh, I learned so much about um, service-based architectures, about scaling, um, about, you know, building what a high availability really is about and why it's important to maintain availability and what happens when you don't. You know, when you're sitting, you know, uh, I could tell all sorts of other stories, but if, when you're sitting, you know, eating Thanksgiving dinner, looking at a monitor because uh, 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 because there's a problem on the website. And you have to have it fixed and you know it's affecting, you know, millions of dollars of orders right then that moment And you're looking at a chart that shows number of dollars in orders currently coming in and you've seen that chart going down like this. And you you get a perspective of what availability is about and how important it is. And so I learned a lot about the importance of those things and what to do about them too from those years as well as going into AWS and learning about it there as well.
2: Well, let's jump into some of the concepts of high availability and architecting for scale. So it, can it all be boiled down to a service oriented architecture and now um, microservices in a modern architectural world? Sure. Um, so I think the, the simplest answer
1: is probably no. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, sir, I, I don't think you can build a modern application today that is highly scalable and highly available without using services. And without using service-oriented architecture techniques, whether it's microservices or traditional services, whatever it is, but that's not sufficient. Um, You have to use services, but there's a whole lot more to scaling than just services. And probably the biggest single thing that's involved in high availability and high scaling, besides just building the architecting in a service-oriented way, is architecting your organization in the correct way. And, uh, you know, organization matters. It really does matter. And how you structure your organization really does make a difference on both scaling and availability. And in the book, I talk about a a concept called STOSA, which stands for a single team oriented service architecture. It it is a term I made up as part of the book, but it's kind of caught on a little bit. And it's been very, very valuable. And it's a concept about how you uh, organize your development team in such a way, you're essentially you organize your, your company in such a way that you can build a scalable and highly available application. So it talks about things, a lot of it overlaps a lot with DevOps topics, with SRE topics, with, um, you know, with a lot of those sorts of things. But it basically talks about, um, you know, ownership of services, service, building service-oriented architecture is one part of the problem. Assigning ownership and defining what ownership means is another part of it. Um, Service-level agreements um, and and inter-service service-level agreements are incredibly important. And I know Google likes to use the terms SLOs and SLIs. I use the term SLA for everything because there's nothing – the terms SLO imply that an internal agreement, an SLO is less important somehow than an external SLA. And they're not, they're just as important. So I'd like to use the term SLA everywhere in an application, whether it's a, uh, an agreement you're making with a customer or agreement that one service makes with another service on how to perform. It's the use the same term for both. And so defining SLAs between teams, so you know when a problem is occurring, where the problem is coming from, and who's responsible. And knowing who's responsible isn't a blame thing, it's about finding the problem and knowing what it takes to fix it and knowing who to work on it. And you need to do those sorts of things so you can scale the organization as well as scale the, the application.
2: It is the STOSA concept, is that an extension uh, of Conway's law?
1: Um, so I, they're certainly related, but I, I don't think it's directly. Um, but I but I do think there's some relationship there. Uh, certainly you will w- however you build your organization, even using Stosa or not using Stosa, will dictate how your application ends up getting structured. That that's that's definitely true. That's really what Conway's law is saying. But um but I think uh, what you know what what Stosa is really talking about is the best practices and the methods for how the different teams within the organization interact in order to make that happen. So I guess that's kind of an extension of Conway's Law, but it's, it's related,
2: but somehow seems like a little bit different than that. But it provi- it's providing a blueprint, an action plan for, for implementation of uh, team, organizing teams. Exactly. Yes. Let's talk about some of the specifics of scalability. Uh, beyond. So, you know, we have event-based uh, architectures, uh, microservices, There's different ways of architecting services. Within each of these, sometimes we have to manage state. Uh, we have to maintain state, something of this person did this, so we and we can remember that state uh, in a re, in the next service. So, how is it? How important is it? The way applications are going to manage state, the, and how the does that affect their ability to scale? Yeah, so state is kind of the uh,
1: the enemy of scaling in many respects. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the The more states you have, the harder it is to scale. And in fact, the easiest application to scale is a stateless, or the easiest service to scale is a stateless service. And so state is very, very important. Um, There are a lot of different models for how to handle state and how to handle data in general within an application. I'm a firm believer that with some exceptions that state needs to be Part of the service that is the most responsible for that data. And it's part of the ownership model. And you distribute your state throughout the application. You do not have centralized state. You distribute it correctly. So that tends to indicate you have fewer stateless services and more stateful services. Which seems counterintuitive to the idea that a stateless server scales better. So why have more stateful servers? Mm. But but by spreading the state around that way, the each individual service has less state that it has to worry about and can deal with the parts of its state that it needs to worry about and scale it appropriately. And it fits very well into the scaling model of yeah, the, the organization scaling as well, too. The, the more data you have, the more complex the data interactions are, the more you split it up and create barriers between it, the more thoughtful you have to be in how the data interacts with each other. One of the biggest problems you run into with state, with data, data in general, is when you lose track of the connectivity of the data to the point where you don't know if this ta- if there's any queries in your application where this data is being queried against this data, and you don't know if if um if there's joints joins that are going on in weird ways, and and so that makes it very difficult as you're scaling that database to split that data apart. You can't do it easily because you don't know who's using it or how it's being used. But by pre-splitting the data, if you will, and putting the data next to the owner, next to the person that knows the data the most and is using the data the most, and then build you know, APIs between your services for accessing that data, you make very clear boundaries up front and that makes the scaling a lot better as time goes on.
2: We've also mentioned uh, SLAs between teams, and often when we're, you know, talking about scaling an application, we're t- trying to avoid failure. Um, but should architects actually be designing for failure when they're building an application for scale? So you know, absolutely. Uh, I'm a,
1: um, I'm a big fan of chaos testing, and uh, the original model that Netflix put out was 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 golden, and something I very much promote. Anytime I'm working with an organization as I talk about chaos testing as an integral part of the application. Um, I, I often hear a lot of companies talk about chaos testing as something they do in dev environments or staging environments. And and no, you want to do chaos testing in production, in live running production systems. You want to, you want to do what sounds crazy. You want to disable services in production. You want to turn them off. You want to break them. You want to do odd things to them. You want to do that on a regular basis. You want to do it continuously because you want to see how your system responds. You want to be able to do that at a time when people are paying attention to the system. People in the company are paying attention to the system so they can understand how failure works in the system and can do the proper techniques to, to, um, to prevent that from happening. You know, think of the case of a, of a programmer who's putting in a change for something. And, you know, it's in a service A, and one of the things service A does is it talks to service B. And someone says, well, what happens if service B is down? And, you know, often the response is, I can't worry about that now. I've got a deadline. Service B never goes down. We'll worry about that when that problem comes up. And we'll just put this out, and things, we'll just assume it's going to work. Well, you've just introduced technical debt in the system, because service B will fail at some point. And now you have an unknown issue that's occurring. But if you know, as an engineer, that Service B fails regularly and you have to deal with it, you're not going to make those decisions. You're gonna say, I need to deal with this now because right after I deploy it at some point in time, Service B is going to fail and I'm gonna to have to deal with it. And, and you, you know it's going to happen. You're not gonna defer those decisions as often. You're gonna make the right choices up front. And if you don't make the right choices, either intentionally or, or accidentally, you're gonna notice, and you're gonna find the problems earlier and with more attention on them than at two o'clock in the morning, six months later when some random thing happens and you don't know what's what going on. Mm-hmm. So I'm a firm believer in chaos testing. I'm a firm believer in build for failure. And I'm also a firm believer in fail often,
2: fail fast, and, and find the problems quickly take some confidence to do chaos testing in production environments there right <laughs> it, it does it does it's
1: it's it's a very tough pill almost mm. an impossible pill for a company who's never done it to mm. say okay now we're going to do it in production yeah so you, you usually have to build them up to that you say okay let's let's start with staging let me show you how it works and yeah. let's do something simple let's do a you know, let's, let's bring down a server that's a spare. Let's see what happens and show you how you respond to that. And you build it up little by little. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's, it's a lot easier to build chaos testing in at the beginning than it is later on, not mm-hmm. only from a technical standpoint of building it in, but um, from a cultural standpoint. And so, yeah, it's, you know, it's, you know, the, the other thing that says is as you're, if you're developing a new application, Built these sorts of scaling concepts in from the beginning uh these availability concepts in from the beginning because it's so much easier to think about chaos testing before you have a customer
2: than it is after you have a million customers mm. well, you mentioned that concept of introducing technical debt um and I guess you know we could probably have a whole podcast on just technical introducing technical debt, having to deal with these issues later. Um, but that's the concept, right? It's, 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 you, 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 by failing to recognize or um, address something early, you're just pushing it down the track that you're going to have to eventually uh, review it and it could have more implications than it had early. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, there's, sometimes
1: you, you do that intentionally and planned to insert a technical debt for project reasons and, you know, there's pros and cons to that. And there's times where you just have to do that. And, and as long as you do it, you know, technical debt by itself isn't bad. Technical debt that you are unaware of, that's what's bad. So if you're putting technical debt into the system as a business decision and you're knowingly doing it and you have a plan to remove it later, you know, that's part of risk management. Mm-hmm. And an important part of risk management. But when you don't know about it, and you're doing things that are causing technical debt to be inserted and you have no idea that you're doing it and the side effects are gonna be unknown later. That's the sort of technical debt in particular that's very, very
2: bad. That's right. You, you've mentioned risk management a couple of times and I know you dedicate a section to, of your book to risk management. Yep. What are the sort of concepts because we keep talking about risk. So what are the what are we sort of are things we're talking about with risk when we're talking about scalability? Yeah, so the main thing we're talking about with risk is to understand
1: and plan for risk in advance so you know what's going on and you can make plans for it. So I talk about building a risk matrix. And I and and the teams I work with, I expect every team for every service to build a risk matrix that defines all of their known risks um, and their thoughts on unknown risks and where the the unknown areas are that becomes part of the risk matrix. And uh, assign both a severity and a priority to to all of them, and then and then you sort them and you organize them, you categorize them, and knowing the risk that plays into your planning process for how you're going to add new functionality later, and and that's essentially a, your documentation, if you will, of your of your technical debt of your of your of your risk plan. Now, any team that has a risk matrix that's empty that says, well, we we're we're really, really good. We've got all the problems solved. There's no risk here at all. You know, first of all, they're lying, or they're at least not don't understand what's going on. But two, that means they haven't thought hard enough and they need to spend more time to come up with it. And um, you know, you you should not have a goal or an expectation that you have no risk in your application, but you want to come to the state where you don't have as little unknown risk as possible. Known risk is okay as long as you know about it, have a mitigation plan associated with it. The other thing that I didn't mention is for every line item in the risk matrix, you have to have a mitigation plan. If this risk does fire, what do you do? So if this problem does occur, we have a plan in advance that's, maybe it's part of your run books for processes to do in certain circumstances, whatever it is. You know in advance what you're going to do if that uh, risk actually occurs. So you, you have risk, you can plan for it. Risk is a natural part of the development of process of a, of an application of, of natural process of everything. Um, it's just unknown risk or risk that you don't have a plan for that you want to avoid. So by recognizing the risk, seeing it, organizing it, um, you know prioritizing it, and then planning for it, you can be prepared when problems occur. That'll improve availability and that'll improve scalability because a lot of risks fire as you scale up. And that's a common point when risks actually occur.
2: Yeah, right. That's the, that's the relationship to scale. Right.
1: Yeah, scale and availability go very much hand in hand. It's More often than not, availability issues um, often have as a root cause some form of scalability. Issue. And scaling issues normally come back to availability. So, when I talk about architecting for scaling, I'm really talking about architecting for availability. And, and because of, they're so
2: in, um, intertwined that they really are the same thing. Yeah, availability despite the throughput, with increasing throughput. Yeah. So, that's, you, that's right. Um, so, you've talked about a labeling system for service tiers uh, within a microservices architecture to avoid potential disasters. Can you, can you run us through this concept? Sure, sure. So um, I, I have a,
1: what I call service tiers. And actually, this is not my something I made up. This is something I, we had at uh, Amazon that worked very effectively, and I've just carried it through in other places. And what we do is we, we have four tiers assigned, tier one through tier four. Tier ones are your most business-critical services, and tier four are your least business-critical services. You assign each service to a tier. An you know, example of a tier one business critical service is is a service that is, um, you know, if this service fails, your application will fail. I mean, period. You don't have any choice. And you know, a good example, a classic example of that is a login service. You can't log into a to a website. You know, it's yeah, you know, a website application. That application is not useful to you. So that's a good example of a tier one service. There's obviously lots of examples of that. An example of a Tier 4 service is a service that is uh, not mission critical in any way, shape, or form. If it goes down, you can run your application without anybody noticing or any customer noticing for some non-insignificant period of time. And a a good example of a Tier 4 service is uh, is a back-end reporting service, something that reports information about what's going on with the system. I'm not trying to say that reporting and measurement isn't important but it doesn't have a direct effect on the performance of the application at that moment. So you, you associate a tier with every single one of your services and you use those tiered numbers in your, process, in your system processes in a couple of different ways. One way is in your, your problem um, uh, uh, severity assignment process. So when you associate a ticket or, or a problem with a service, it's got a severity that affects you know, how critical this issue is, but it's also assigned to a service, and a service has a tier number. When you're trying to prioritize what things are important to the company or to a team, if a team owns more than one service, you use those two numbers together. Uh, obviously, a high-severe and a high-tier service is the most critical thing to fix, and a low-severity, low-tier is the least important to fix. But you know, what about a tier-two you know, a, a sub two problem in a tier three service or a sub three problem in a tier two service. Yeah, And by having both those dimensions, you can make plans for which problems you fix first and what order problems are, are fixed and how important different parts of the application are. The other place you use service tiers is in the connection between services. So what services talk to other services and they talk to other services at different tier levels. So if you have a mission critical service, a tier one service that ends up communicating with a tier four service, a non-mission critical service, you better have a strong plan in place for what happens if that tier four service is down because guaranteed it's gonna be down more often than will, will, you will find sat, you know, uh, a satisfactory metric for your service to be down. So you need to be able to figure out how do you can operate the service in event of that service being down or unavailable or problematic or whatever. That service that you're calling has to be optional. The opposite, if you have a tier four service calling a tier one service, you can pretty much ignore problems because if that tier one service is down, there's a whole lot of other problems going on in the system. (laughs) The fact that that the management reports aren't going out isn't that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. And now those are two extremes. Mm -hmm. The details are in the middle interactions. But you'd yes. be amazing the number of times you find places where, you know, a service, you know, you, uh, let's say a, sev, a, a tier two service, has connections with an awful lot of uh, tier three services that you didn't really realize were tier three yes, services. And, and that combination in particular is pretty common. So it gives visibility to these interactions that can affect availability and uh, across teams and it's, and a part of stosa that way as well too as far as organizing how things work it's part of the slas that go with things but it's just a way of labeling and understanding the importance of a service so you can apply processes to make sure that you're dealing with the interactions correctly
2: the uh, second edition of architecting for scale was published by o'reilly last year and mm-hmm. uh, which is, i think is uh, four years after the uh, first edition was published uh, I'm guessing there was quite a lot which changed in fact I was, I was reading uh, some comments by yourself as to uh, what you incorporated in the second edition was uh, there was advances in the industry such as serverless computing and uh, in your tours and speaking engagements you spoke to a lot of experts and you are able to incorporate some of their feedback into the second edition of the book what changed in that four-year period what, what, what can uh, people expect to see in the second edition sure
1: sure so a lot of things change in the book, but one of the, uh, and I'll, I'll definitely get to answering your question specifically. But one of the things that I've learned was the way the first edition wasn't was structured wasn't as optimal, and so I changed the, the art, the book is dramatically reorganized into five different tenets that um, correspond better to topics that individual people will want to talk about. That's one of the major changes that occurred, but I added a lot of content in a couple of key areas. I um, that related to changes in the industry. There, there's a bunch of content related to serverless that applies. Serverless is a something that was around four years ago, but it's, it's higher on the, on the curve now as far as acceptability and uh, used in a lot more cases and perhaps more cases than it should be, but it's used in mm-hmm. many, many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, edge computing is something that's grown a lot in importance and prevalence in the last four years. Uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning um, algorithms, and and how central they are to key applications now. Um, you're no longer seeing them in fringe areas like voice recognition. You're seeing them in in mainstream data processing within the heart of applications now. Um, you're also, you know, even just with cloud, uh, it's you know, it seems weird to say this, but cloud is mainstream now. And mm. and four years ago. It may have seemed that way, but it really wasn't. And, and it really wasn't in some industries, and it really wasn't in some parts of the world. You know, For instance, four years ago, Europe was very, very hesitant to use the cloud. Asia accepted the cloud very, very prevalently. The U.S. pretty much did, too, in some industries and not in other industries. Europe was very anti-cloud for a long time. They just didn't trust the cloud and they didn't trust the security aspects of the cloud. And and most of that's shifted within the last few years and it's much more accepted, but there are still some holdouts, you know, and I think one of the classic holdouts and, and uh, my very last business trip was to a company in this space and the, one of the big holdouts, and that was a year ago before the pandemic hit is where that was, but one of the big holdouts still is, uh, is, um, uh, Private banking in Switzerland—that's a huge industry that flatly refuses to use the cloud. It's just not in their mindset. It's just not something that's uh, that's critical to their to their to, um, use case. And as such, you'll see—you know—how many uh, regions does uh, AWS have in Switzerland? Well, at the time, they had zero. Yeah. <laughs> because it just wasn't a market for them. Yeah. Uh, they just couldn't break into that very well. And I, I'm not sure if it's still zero or if they've actually launched one now or not. But, but you you get the idea. Um, and and so um, the cloud is much more mainstream now than it was four years ago. And that's it, it. Used to be the conversations back then were, okay, we'll consider the cloud, but tell us why we need it and how it's going to work. And now it's a matter of, well, if you're not using the cloud, tell me why you're not and what you're going to do instead. That's a drastic shift in the conversations that have occurred in a lot of companies.
2: Lee Atchison, uh, just one of those books that every architect should have in their library. Uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Um, and uh, it would be fantastic to have the opportunity to talk to you again on uh, on some of, the, uh, some of the areas in more detail that we've sort of just briefly covered today. More than glad to. This- I, I love, obviously, I love talking about these topics and
1: I uh, enjoyed being here. And and, uh, and thank you for inviting me. Great. Thanks, Lee.
0: All right, Lee. Uh, where, can you, where can our guests uh, find you or follow you, or maybe where can they buy your book as well?
1: Sure. So, uh, Lee uh, leeatchison.com, L E E A T C H I S O N.com, if you have show notes or something. Yeah. Um, uh, is the best place. Uh, I have all of my my writings on there and links to other things and, and to, uh, to what I'm doing. Um, and, uh, you can buy the book at Amazon. Uh, you can also get it. If you're an O'Reilly uh, Safari member, you get the book for free in the online Safari membership package. Um, and it's available on other platforms as well, but Amazon is the, the main place.
0: All right, cool. Thanks very much, Lee. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap for this round of cocktails to our listeners. What did you think of this podcast episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there, cause we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. Again, thank you very much for listening to us today. On behalf of the entire team here at Toro Cloud. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers!